Amen. It is written in Psalm 119, your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Psalm 119, verse 109, your word is a, is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Psalm 119, 130 and 131, the unfolding of your words gives life. It gives understanding to the simple. I appreciate that. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. One of my favorites in Isaiah 55, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, we do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purposes for which I sent it. First Thessalonians, Paul writes to the church there, something he was grateful for. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Second Timothy chapter three, Paul writes, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, so does man's glory. The word of the Lord stands forever. And this is a word that was preached to you. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. I know the Discovery Channel may say something different. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence grateful for the opportunity to do so, and grateful for your word. And God, I just pray that right now that everybody will breathe out every distraction and will breathe in the truth of who you are. God, I'm so grateful, Lord, that you chose to give us your word. You have not left us alone in this world, but you've given us a guide for our life. And Lord, I, I just pray that uh, you help me to capture just a little bit how incredible this book is. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this morning we are we're kicking off a, a brand new series and actually it, it was one I intended on kicking off after Easter, uh, but then came the torn bicep and the injury and so on and so on. I'm, I'm told I get to pick up a glass in two weeks with my left hand. I'm pretty excited about that. But I'm even more excited about this series called Understanding the Bible. It's, it's a series about understanding this book, that, this book that is eternal, this book that stands firm in the heavens, this book that is a, that is a lamp to our, to our feet and a light to our path, this book that gives us both light and understanding, a series about a book that comes from the mouth of God and that it will accomplish what God desires and achieve God's purposes. 
Uh, this book that actually is at work in, in those who believe. That this book that corrects us when, when we are wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. This book that prepares and equips us for every good work that God would have us do. This book that is alive and active. This book that is sharper than a double-edged sword. This book that penetrates and that judges the thoughts and attitudes of your heart and my heart. This book that though all the glory of man will fall and wither like flowers and grass, this book that will stand forever. This book that was written by men who spoke for God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This book that is not just ink on paper. This book that is not just another book. Yet for several weeks we'll be having some conversations about understanding the Bible. Now, it seems like every, today everybody has an opinion about the Bible. I understand some in our world think that the Bible is just made up. Uh, just a bunch of stories that men made up. Stories that, that simply meet the needs of weak-minded people. And, and others say that this book is God-breathed. And that it's the hope not just for their lives, but it's the hope for the world. That question what are your thoughts in regards to this book? Do you believe that, do you believe that this book is from God? Do, do you believe that, that, that this book is, is true? I mean, how seriously do, do you take this book in your life? Do you, do you take the time to read it? Do you, do you follow its teachings? Is this book a compass? Is it a guide? Is, it, is this book the authority for your life? Do you understand it? Do you find uh, this book's 1,189 chapters, 31,000 verses, and 800,000 words at times to be a little bit intimidating, challenging, and, and hard to understand? I guess here, here, here's the billion-dollar question, right? Inflation used to be a million-dollar question. Now it's up to a billion, okay? Um, do you want to understand the Bible better? Would you like to have more confidence in it? If you answered yes, I'm glad you're here. Because you're at the right spot at the right time. Because today we begin a series of messages about understanding the Bible better. Beginning with conversation today called, We Can Trust the Bible. Uh, a little later on, um, next week we're going to have a conversation about the story of the Bible. And then we're going to have a conversation about how we got the Bible you know, like, okay, I'm holding a Bible in my hand. Like, how did it get here? <laughs> like, like, what kind of stuff happened? And then we're going to spend several weeks talking about principles for seeing the Bible in high definition, right? Some, some biblical principles for interpreting the Bible so that when you read the Bible, you actually understand what it says, right? Because things can be misinterpreted, right? Has anybody ever misinterpreted you? <laughs> Are you married? <laughs> I better stop right now. Um, I, I, yeah, fast stop. <laughs> Have you ever doubted that, like, like, what if none of this stuff is true? Like, 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 what, what is this stuff in church and the Bible? What if it's not true? Like, what if we die and we are just worm food? You know, you, you ever think, that, ever have that thought pop in your mind? I have. I go like, whoa, I don't really like that thought. And I go through a process in my mind. I go, okay, wait a second. I know there's a God because we live in a contingent universe. 
Yeah, you know, and if we live in a contingent universe, there has to be someone uncontingent, right, who is not dependent on anything and uncalls cause, right? Had to be something that got this whole thing going. And then I look at design and, you know, the more complicated design, the more complicated the designer. We have a very complicated world, therefore there's a design. Okay, there's a God, you know. And then I'll go, okay, there's a God. I feel a little bit better. And then I'm like, well, what if God ever visited the planet? Like, you know, like if God ever came here, like, like he would live a life that just rocked the world forever. And I go, is there someone whose life just rocked the world forever? I go, oh, Jesus. Okay, feeling better. And then I'm like, well, if, if this, if this non-contingent, uncaused by anything else, self-sufficient, self-reliant, all-powerful, intelligent, always existing, unique, good and moral God who loves us were to write a book, what kind of book would it be? It'd be the most amazing book ever in human history. And you think, I think among other things, a book written by God would be unique in a class of its own. It would be accurate. We could trust what it says. It would be supernatural. It would know stuff that only God would know. And it would be transforming. It would radically change the lives of people. I contend that the Bible is that book. That the Bible is the book written by God. And my goal in this series is really simple. It is to, number one, convince you that you can trust the Bible. <laughs> it convince you that the Bible really is God's word. That, that it's not just ink on paper, right? It's not just another book, but it was breathed by God. And number two, I, I want to motivate you, right? I mean, like it really was written by God, right? Like who created like everything, then maybe I should read what he has to say. Yeah, yeah, maybe he has some insight into life more than I do, and more than talking heads on TV or, you know, whatever, right? Seminars, maybe he has something to say about life. And, and, and motivated to read because the book's written from God, and because after the series, you'll have some tools. You'll have some principles that will help you when you open its pages and say, hey, wait a second, here's what that means. Here's what Paul's talking about. So that's my goal. I want you to have deep confidence in the Bible. Let's do this. You can trust the Bible because the Bible is unique. You know, Webster must have had the Bible in mind when he came up with the definition of the word unique. Check out this definition of the word unique. Uh, one and only, single, soul, different from all others, having no equals. And, and, and I want to talk about several ways that the Bible is unique. Ways that the Bible is, is different from all others. Ways that the Bible stands alone and has no equals. First, the Bible is unique in its composition. And some notes for you to fill in here. Understand, the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years in three languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. On three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And it was written by 40 plus different writers from all walks of life, including kings, military leaders, uh, peasants, poets, fishermen, prophets, statesmen, priests, scribes, scholars, shepherds, fig pickers, Amos, and even an IRS agent. He got in there. It, it was written in different places. Moses wrote in the wilderness, Jeremiah in a dungeon, Daniel in the palace, Paul behind prison bars, Luke while traveling, and John while exile in Patmos. 
It was written in, in a wide variety of literary styles. In this book, we have poetry, song, romance, law, biography, prophecy, historical narrative, parable, and allegory. I understand, there's no book like the Bible in its composition. I mean, I challenge you to find another book written over a span of 1,500 years by 40-plus men in three languages, living on three continents, and yet fit together so perfectly. But let me save you some time. You're not going to find a book like that. Next, the Bible is unique in its circulation. It's the most published book in human history. There's over 100 million copies of the Bible printed and sold every year, though it's hard to estimate. Uh, It's estimated that over 6 billion Bibles have been printed. Not to mention, right, you know, this, right? You know, 250 million people have downloaded the YouVersion app on their phone, right? You know, I I have three Bible reading apps. I got YouVersion, I I downloaded a New Living Translation, I have Bible Gateway on my phone. Uh, Raise your hand if you have a Bible app on your phone. By the way, that's the only reason I have your phone out right now. (laughs) Or taking notes or posting on Facebook. Wow, Steve is really awesome, okay? (laughs) Next, the Bible is unique in its translation. In fact, it was the first book, one of the first books ever translated in 250 B.C., uh, the Bible was translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, and the name given to that translation was the Septuagint. It means 70. 70 guys were working on it, and it's because the Jews living in Alexandria no longer spoke Hebrew, and they needed Greek. And most books are never translated into another language, right? You know, I mean, maybe a couple, right? Very few books get, get into the double digits. But check out these figures that come from the Wycliffe Global Alliance. It's an organization, translate organization, um, made up of 100 different organizations in 80, in 60 countries, okay? Okay, the full Bible has been translated into 682 languages. Full Bible. That represents 5.4 billion people. The New Testament has been translated into additional 1,543 languages, representing about 700 million people. Portions of Scripture 1,121 represents 400 million people. You do the math, 6.5 billion people. The Bible's been translated into 3,346 languages of the 69,000 languages, give or plus, in our world today. And right now, there's an army of people working to get the languages of every, get the Bible in every language. In fact, right now, they're working on 2,500 additional languages. They're trying to crank out like three to 400 every year. Like, if language is your thing, it's not mine, right? It, 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 but if, like, you're, like, really good at that stuff, right? You're good at your grandma, I mean, grammar and stuff like that, right? You know, this would be a great career. I mean, can you imagine playing a partner role that here's these people that don't have word of God? And because God has gifted you with language that you're, you, you take part in this? Or maybe you just want to go online and say, what? you know, I'd like to give some money so that I know I'm helping there's a group called One Word that you can, you can donate money and you're going to get like one verse. You can say, hey, you know, so hey, I gave one verse to this tribe overseas and they have that verse because I made a donation. Um, version, you know, it won't show up on your phone, but they're in 1,100 languages. And, and there's a, a site called Faith Comes From Hearing and they have the Bible and audio in 1,100 languages. 
very unique, <laughs> most translated book. The Bible's unique in its survival. I mean, attacks on the Bible are, are not anything new. In 303 AD, the Roman emperor Diocletian issued an edict to destroy all Christians and their Bibles. And, and the persecution that, that followed after this was one of the most brutal the Roman Empire ever, ever undertook. And toward the end of it, Diocletian ordered a monument to be erected, and on it he had this triumphant words inscribed, the name Christian is extinguished. Fast forward 25 years, he's dead. Constantine becomes emperor. He makes Christianity legal, and he uses a government, and they sponsor, very expensive at the time, right? He sponsored 50 copies of the Bible to be made. In 1776, Voltaire, the French philosopher, announced that 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth, except that one is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. Yet a hundred years from that day, his own house and print press are used to print Bibles and to store Bibles for the Geneva Convention. Ironically enough, at a public auction, a hundred years from his prediction, uh, one of his originals, a manuscript sold for 11 cents, where a manuscript of the Bible sold for $250 million. As Peter said, all men are like grass, all their glories like the flowers of the field, the grass withers. And the flower fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Bible scholar Bernard Rand writes this. A thousand times over, the death bell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession has been formed. The inscription cut on the tombstone and the committal read. But somehow the corpse never stays put. Uh, Next, the Bible is unique in its influence. Uh, The Bible is the most influential book in human history. The Bible has set more brushes and pen in motion than we can imagine. The Bible has influenced such great artists as Raphael, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, Rembrandt, Michelangelo, as I used to call him. Hey, Michael, last name Angelo, right? And and musicians like Bach, Handel, and Beethoven. Uh, in, in, In fact, the Bible has inspired over 400 great works of art and musical composition. Not only that, the Bible's had great influence on nearly every walk of life. It's influenced government, philosophy, judicial systems. In fact, our own Declaration of Independence, Constitution, and Judicial Code is grounded in the Bible. And not only has the Bible influenced history, but it's also influenced some of history's uh, greatest men. Abe Lincoln said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given man. George Washington, it's impossible to rightly govern the world without God in the Bible. Napoleon, the Bible is no mere book, but a living creature with the power that conquers all that oppose it. Patrick, Patrick Henry, the Bible is worth all the books which has ever been printed. Charles Dickens, the New Testament is the very best book that ever was or ever will be known in the world. Benjamin Franklin, a Bible in every home is the principal support of virtue, morality, and civil liberty. Woodrow Wilson said, when you have read the Bible, You will know that it is the word of God because you have found in it the key for your own happiness and for your own duty. A man has deprived himself of the very best in this world who has deprived himself of the knowledge of the Bible. Ronald Reagan said, I found the Bible contains an answer to just about everything and every problem that confronts us. And I wonder sometimes why we won't recognize that one book could solve our problems for us. Amen. Right on. Home run. And as Sir Walter Scott lay dying, he said to his friend and biographer, John Lockhart, read from the book. Lockhart goes, what book? There is but one. 
and Sir, Sir Walter Scott. And finally, the Bible is unique in its continuing, continuing universal appeal. For centuries, people from all walks of life, young and old, rich and poor, educated, not educated, male, female, king and peasant, slave and free, people living in different places, different times, and, and different cultures, different backgrounds, have been found reading this book. I mean, think about the Psalms and Proverbs are 3,000 years old. And, and, and just as they spoke then and for 30 centuries since, they still speak today. You know, I, I, was in a, I was in a hospital room this week with the family watching their, uh, their granny go home. And, and, and I read these words that have been read in similar situations for thousands of years. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. How many times, how many people, how many places have people read those words? I mean, how many other books do you read with 3,000-year-old poetry, right, on a regular basis? Anybody read? I, I, I don't. And here's another thing about the Bible. You know, most times you get a book, right? You read the book, you're done reading the book, stick it on the shelf, put it in the box until you're ready to sell it for 25 cents at a garage sale, right? <laughs> you know? And then you find another book to read. But the thing about the Bible is like you don't ever seem to get done reading it, right? It, it, even if you read it through once, you find yourself reading it again and again and again and again and again. I mean, guys, I, I have been intently studying this book since 1979, for 39 years. And guess what? I'm not done. And I'm not bored. I mean, I, I read some words this morning from Romans 15. And it's like words that, guess what? I needed to hear. I'm like, this is so cool. This is really, really an awesome book. If God were to write a book, it would be unique. One of a kind, different from all others. And I contend that the Bible is that book. It's unique in composition and circulation, translation, influence, survival, and its abiding appeal. Brothers and sisters, you can trust the Bible because it's unique. You can also trust it because it is accurate. First, it's accurate historically. Now, now is the Bible good history or bad history? I want to give you some examples of history, and you determine whether it's good history or bad history, okay? World War I was a bitter four-year conflict fought from 1904 to 1908. Good history or bad history? Okay, and, and, and why is it bad? Some of you are like, I'm not sure. Sounds good to me, right? Because you slept during American history. But what, what, what's bad about that? The dates, right? The dates are all wrong, right? It was 1914 to 1918, okay? Here's another one. World War II was a bloody conflict between Allied and Axis forces fought on the battlefields in central China and southern Africa from 1939 to 1945. Good history or bad history? Bad. Now, why is it, the dates are right. What's bad? Geography, right? You know, right? Good history pays attention to, to geography. Okay, third statement. Uh, the Soviet Union premier, Margaret Thatcher, always remembered as the leader who engineered the unraveling of the Soviet Union. Good history or bad history? Okay, why? It's the wrong what? It's the wrong person, right? It was Gorbachev, right? And see, good history pays attention to people facts. Just one more. Uh, Michael Jordan played basketball for... Uh, over a decade for the Chicago Bulls in the 80s and 90s, but his play was just average, okay? 
Is that good history or bad history, right? It's, it's bad, right? Because it, it's got the storyline wrong, right? You know? And see, bad history, among other things, uh, it, it, bad history is something that plays loose with dates, places, people, and storylines. And, and all that, just to say that when you compare the Bible to accepted history, you find that the Bible is well-established. You see, the Bible's not bad history. It, it, it's not just good history. In fact, the Bible is outstanding history. You see, not only does the Bible get it right when it comes to geography and people and storyline and dates, but what has happened in recent years because, because of archaeology is that the Bible has been proven to be true and, and the Bible critics and historians have been proven to be wrong. You see, prior to archaeology, what what Bible critics would do, they'd say, hey, guess what? The Bible got that wrong. That's not historically true. Therefore, we don't have to believe the Bible. The Bible's not true. You can't trust the Bible. And so they would proudly walk around thinking that, you know, in their minds, they had the Bible on the ropes and were about to, to give it a, a knockout punch. But then archaeology came and the Bible pulled a rocky Balboa, right? And, and, and instead knocked them to the canvas. I'd like, I like to give you just a couple examples. There's a bunch of them. For years, critics of the Bible pointed to a group of people met the Old Testament called the Hittites and said, no such group of people ever existed. This is purely fictional. There's no record of them anywhere. The Bible's bad history, therefore you cannot trust the Bible. It can't be true. Then in 1906, they unearthed not only evidence of the Hittite nation, but they, they found the capital city and, and four other cities that made up their empire. And after that, all the Bible critics said, guess we were wrong. The Bible's right. The Bible's true. No, that's not what they said. Because they're, they're not honest. They're not intellectually honest. They're dishonest. Another example, the name Pilate was said to be a figment of the gospel writer's imagination because no one named Pilate was found in secular history. Then 1961, a helicopter was flying down the coast of Israel, and it saw a circle in the sand, which led to the excavation of a city named Caesarea Philippi and a great amphitheater. And the walls of that amphitheater was a plaque dedicated to the guy who built it, Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea. And this kind of thing has happened countless times over the last hundred years, where it was thought to be Bad history in the Bible proved to be good history because of the archaeological evidence. And we see this in the New Testament. I mean, Luke was a crazy historian. I mean, he nailed it in archaeology proof. When Luke talked about cities and towns and dates and, and names of leaders in various places and terrains and rivers, he got like everything spot on, even the coinage. I mean, he nailed it. Um, there were some names of, of, of rulers and, and leaders in some cities that no one even knew existed, but Luke had it in the book of Acts, and guess what happened? When archaeology proved it. Uh, check out this quote right here. Um, Dr. Nelson uh, Gluck, the greatest modern authority on Israeli archaeology, has said this, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirming clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of a biblical description has often led to amazing discoveries. You know what that last part is saying? Now sometimes when they're trying to figure out where to dig, they use the Bible as a map. 
next the Bible is accurate in its text. And we're going to talk a lot more about that when we talk about how we got the Bible. But let, let me just say this, you know, like, in most time, if you go to a secular university, it's not long, maybe before the first football game where you're, you're given an assignment to read, you know, from the writings of Plato and Aristotle, right? You know, giants of philosophy, right? They've influenced thought for, for centuries. And, and no one questions the content of their work. No, no one questions the reliability of the text. And no, no one questions whether or not the writings have been passed down uh, through the years without error. It's simply taken for granted that what you're reading is what they wrote. But did you know that there's only 12 existing copies of their manuscripts? Only 12. To determine how accurate it's been. Now, how many manuscript copies do you think we have in the New Testament? 20? 30? 120? You know, have 10 times as much? That would be good. All right? Check out this little chart right here. It's in your notes. You can see Plato. You can see the year he lived. You can see when he, the, the earliest copy, 940 AD. The time gap is... 1,300 years from when he wrote that you have your very first copy. That seems like a chunk of time to me. Seven copies. Aristotle, you can see the time gap, 1,400 years. You can see the New Testament, we got a time gap of 70 years. And we have not seven copies, not five copies of manuscripts, but 5,856 copies. You could add to that 5,856 number the 20,000 copies of 2nd and 3rd century translations of the Bible. And you could add that to over 1 million quotations from the early church fathers who quoted the Bible. You know, and they were preachers. They, they, they quoted the Bible. And they wrote in the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century. Check out what Dr. William Albright, an archaeologist, Archaeologist and professor Don Hopkins said, No other work from Greco Roman antiquity is so well attested by manuscript tradition as the New Testament. Jack Cottrell, in his book Solid, says, Apart from the trivial variations such in those in spelling and word order, it's estimated that we can be sure of 99.9% of the original New Testament text, and the remaining one tenth of 1% contains nothing critical, nothing that affects doctrine. How about the Old Testament? Is it accurate? One of the greatest archaeological discoveries happened because boys like to throw stones, <laughs> right? You know, a, a shepherd boy, right, is tossing some rocks in a cave. He hears a jar break and discovers what God had been protecting for nearly 2,000 years, right? He, he found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and huge discovery because up until that time, the oldest copy of the Old Testament we had was dated 900 A.D., uh, but, but, but when the Dead Sea Skulls were discovered, we, we, we jumped back over a thousand years and now have manuscripts that were written 100 B.C. to 200 B.C. And, and what they found in the copying, that the texts were 99.5% accurate. The manuscript they found that was written, you know, in 200 B.C. compared to 1,000 A.D. were like 99.5. It had to deal with spelling errors and slips of the pen. If God were to write a book, it would be the most amazing book. I contend the Bible is that book. And I want you to know you can trust the Bible because it's unique, because it's accurate, and because it's supernatural. What I mean by that, it knows some stuff that only God would know. Fulfill prophecies. And do not forget the things I've done throughout history, for I am God, I alone, I am God, and there is no one else like me. Only, 
Only I can tell you what is going to happen even before it happens. Everything I plan will come to pass, for I do whatever I wish. And, and there, you know, there are like hundreds of Bible prophecies that, that, that we could talk about. You know, and, and beginning next week, I'm going to set up a table of some of my books, I think are really good books that you can stroll up, take a picture of, and maybe get uh, that, that I think would help you if you want to go in deeper study of this, all right? Um, but but uh, here's a powerful one from Ezekiel chapter 26 about the destruction of a city called Tyre. He, he, and, and Ezekiel predicts that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, would destroy the city. He predicts that many nations would come against that city. He predicts that the city would be leveled and scraped clean like a bare rock. He, he predicted that the city's stones and timbers and soil will be cast into the sea. He, he predicted that the surrounding area will become a place for the spreading of a fisherman's net. And guess what? History proves that's exactly what happened. Now, in addition to the inland city, they had an island city. And when Nebuchadnezzar came in 586 B.C. to attack the city, he laid siege on the city when he's finally able to take the inland city, he found that everybody took off. <laughs> and they were all on the island, and he could do nothing about it. And that's how it sat for 241 years until Alexander the Great came along. And he wanted to take the city, or the island, and it was a tough job. And he literally had his army scrape clean the inland of all buildings, timber, stones, and dirt, and had them dump those materials into the ocean, thereby building a land bridge to the island. Just like God said. And even though Alexander inflicted great damage, he didn't totally take the city. He had waxed and waned for like a, a, another 1,600 years until A.D. 1291 when the Muslims came in and finally took the city. He predicted what? That many nations will come against that city. He predicted they would never regain their same wealth and prosperity. He, and he said what? That they would basically be a ball rock where fishermen gather to open their nets. And if you were to go to where ancient Tyre is today, you would find a small colony of people that live there, and you'll never guess what they do for a living. They fish with nets. They fish with nets. And, and the odds of that happening, all those predictions coming true in any one man are one to 75 million. And it's the same odds of you being killed by an airplane falling on the ground. Okay? You know, and how did he know that? I contend because God knew, Right? Jesus, we know that there's hundreds of prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. And because they're dead street girls, right? Now we have them before Jesus was born. Right? Before then, they could say what? Well, hey, it's 900 AD, of course. You know, it's like me predicting the Philadelphia Eagles are going to win the Super Bowl. You're like, well, yeah, okay, they did. And that was, you know, back in February. No big deal. Well, if I would have said the same thing this time last year, right? That, that would be a prediction, right? You know, that, that would be a prediction, right? How would I know that? Right? And so now with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have prophecies about Jesus 100 years before his birth. And if any eight of them came true in any one person, okay, the statistical odds about his birth, where he's lived, his ministry kind of teaching, the same odds of covering the state of Texas, two feet deep in silver dollars, marking one coin, blindfolding someone, and then picking up that first coin on the first try. Okay? I, I, I wouldn't wager on that one. Fulfilled prophecy points to the supernatural nature of God's word. And no stuff only God can know. And, and so do what I call pre-scientific knowledge. 200 years before Columbus proved that the world was not flat, the prophet Isaiah already spoke to the roundness of the earth in Isaiah 40, verse 22. The Bible is also very clear about 
infectious disease, right? In Leviticus, right? Infectious disease. You have to keep them away from everybody. You have to isolate them so the disease does not spread. Obvious to us, but not so obvious back in the fourth century when over one-fourth of the world's population died because of the Black Plague. Yeah, this one's kind of gross, um, but up until the 8th century, you know, human waste was just like dumped anywhere. You lived in a big city, you lived in, you would just dump it out your window, you know? And, and, and then, let me get the year right. Um, in London, in 1846, Edwin Chadwick, a member of the Board of Health in London, was trying to figure out how to stop this, this cholera epidemic that had killed 16,000 people. He discovered that those who lived in the basements, where all the raw sewage would settle, right, were the ones who were getting sick. Now, if they only would listen to the Bible, in Deuteronomy, verse 23, Moses is very clear. You know, you got to go to the bathroom, you take your shovel, you go out, you dig a hole, you do your thing, and you cover that up with dirt, right? You can check it out. That's, you know, they didn't have porta-potties. You take your shovel, and you dig a hole, and you cover it up because it could cause disease. When are you told to circumcise a child in, in, in the Old Testament? On what day? The eighth day, Right? Well, in 1935, Professor Heinrich Dahm discovered vitamin K, which causes the liver to make a substance known as prothobin, which is what causes the blood to clot. And, and, and guess what day vitamin K is at twice its normal level, never gets a high ever again. Anybody want to guess? Eighth day. Like, like, like who would know that, right? God would know that. Up until the 19th century, many people believed that harmful vapors entered the blood and caused sickness. And that led to the practice of bloodletting, right? Where you would put leeches on people and where you would cut open the arm above the elbow and, and to bleed the patient. Many believe this is what killed George Washington, right? In December, he wakes up with a sore throat, probably a respiratory infection. But he believed in bloodletting and over a 12-hour period, they drained five pints of his blood 40% of his total blood volume, and it could have been why he died. Have you ever seen a barber pole? They didn't just cut hair. They were blood letters, right? You know, and the top of the pole was where they kept the fresh leeches, right? I'm here for a shave and a bloodletting. All right, awesome. Let me hook that sucker on you. You know, uh, the red on the pole stands for what? Blood, the white bandages, and the blue for the veins. They're going to get nice and tight so they can drain your blood. And how many people maybe would have lived longer if they didn't practice this? Because Moses said in Leviticus 17 that the life of the creature is in the blood. How would they know that? Because of God. Because of God. If God were to write a book, it would be the most amazing book in human history. And I stand before you today and say, this is the book. This book is unique. This book is accurate. This book is supernatural. And not only that, this book is transformational, right? This book changes lives. I mean, there's no book like the Bible. There's no book that has greater insights in human life and human relationships than the Bible. I mean, in this book, we find out how to be, how to be a better Husband, how to be a better wife, how to be a better parent, how to be a better child, how to be a better person. In this book, in this book, we are taught how to, how to control our tongue, how to control our anger, how to control our money. We're taught in this book how to have healthy relationships. 
How do we have relationships that last? In this book, we're taught about love, what, what love really is, the power, the beauty, and the definition of love. In this book, we're taught how to overcome, overcome our fear, overcome our worry, overcome our addictions, overcome insecurity, overcome selfishness. I mean, this book seems to know exactly what you and I need to do to have peace and joy and hope and freedom. And it seems to know exactly what to say like it did this morning when I opened it up. It knew exactly what I needed to hear. I mean, how could this book know so much? How could it speak such powerful truths, right? Do, I mean, it would change the world, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Totally radical. Yeah, there was teachers that said, hey, if you don't want someone, you know, to cut off your hand, don't cut off their hand. Yeah, that existed. But this radical teacher Jesus, hey, you know what? Do to people. You want people to be nice? Be nice to them. You want people to say hi to you, say hi to them. You want people to send you an encouragement note, send them an encouragement note, right? You know, it, it would radically change the world. And matter of fact, it, it has changed the world. The reason this book knows you and I so well is because it's not just a book, right? It's because this book was written by God himself. And I know I threw out a ton of information. If you want my notes, email me. I'll send you my notes. You know, this is on, online. I mean, this is serious stuff, right? Because my goal is like, wow, maybe, like, like, hey, just maybe it is God's word. Like, like if that's true, maybe we should read it. Maybe we should listen to it. And maybe we should figure out how to understand it better. Because this book, understood the wrong way, has caused a lot of hurt. Justified slavery, it's justified racism, it justified crusades, it justified inquisitions, right? This book read the wrong, just like a weapon, right? A weapon in the wrong hands can hurt people, right? So, you know, but, but we're going to learn some principles so that we can study this, and I guarantee you, we get through the study, you're going to be able to understand the Bible Better than you ever understood it before because you're going to be applying these principles. I will too because I'm relearning a bunch of cool and awesome stuff. And, and as we wrap up, I just want to say this, and it's a real wrap up. I'm, I'm taking the Mark Murray version, right? Okay, I, my fifth wrap up here. But, you know, if God was so careful to be accurate and trustworthy with dates and geography and people, make sure that you knew you could trust what he said, I want you to know that you can trust what he says about the cross. That's accurate and trustworthy. You can trust what he says about mercy and grace. You can trust what he says about how much he loves you. There's a plan and purpose for you. And then when he looks at you, he sees a masterpiece. He sees a, he sees a work of art. You can trust that he has plans and thoughts and intentions for your life. And you can trust that God will never, like the prodigal son, right? God will never, you may give up on him, you may have given up on him, but God will never give up on you. You may have stopped believing in God, but God has never stopped believing in you. You may think you've gone too far, but his grace and mercy is enough. That is accurate, that is trustworthy, amen? Would you guys stand and pray with me? Jesus, Father, Spirit, Spirit, thank you for caring 
those guys along and writing this word, and it's, you're, the word is just incredible, God. We can read it. We can come to it depressed and down and discouraged and, and leave it feeling infused with hope and purpose. And God, I pray for our brothers and sisters. We live in a world that attacks the Bible, that attacks their faith. Young people go to colleges where they make fun of it, Lord, yet they throw out philosophers and historians, Lord, that have less evidence, so much less evidence than we have for your, your word and your truth. God, I pray that we'll be confident in your word, and Lord, that we'll yearn to study it. And Lord, I, I pray that right now as we remember your death and your sacrifice, that we'll do it in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name. Amen.